Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm just wondering why Paul Sperling's wearing a Boston Red Sox shirt. I was like, wow. Oh, no, not another one. Are you kidding me? Anyways, it's good to have all of you here. It's great to be at church, isn't it? I love being here, you know, especially after a week like this. It was kind of a tough week for me in, in a lot of ways. I'll, I'll share a little bit uh, in the message, but, you know, I realize that, um, you know, we go through the week and things happen and there's just, I've come to, um, I've come to this place where I've like despised the, the human condition, you know, just the hurt, the, the pain of it all, the worry that comes with it, um, people getting sick, uh, death, all this. Um, I can't wait to be with Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's what I think every single, every single week. A- amen? Right. So uh, that's our hope, right? Well, I'm excited to, to be with you today to, to share God's uh, message with you, and, and I want to open up our time in a word of prayer, all right? So let's do that first of all. Well, Father, thank you so much. Man, I don't know what we would do without you. Uh, week after week, uh, you know, sometimes, um, boy, I, although we just have so much joy in our hearts, we have so much hope because of you. Um, we go through life, and, and um, sometimes it's really tough, God. Um, I, I think of the the, the folks in our church who are just uh, suffering right now, just going through some real hardships. And Father, you know who they are, and uh, I ask God that you touch each and every one of them. Where healing is necessary and required, do that, God. Where encouragement is needed, Father, provide that. Uh, where, where there needs to be hope, uh, bring hope, Father God. In so many areas where... There are financial needs. Uh, supply those needs. Um, give strength to us, Father. And I pray that this morning you would speak to us. I really believe this, this series and this, and this message is, is much needed. And Father God, I, I, I also um, want to ask you to be our teacher today. Holy Spirit, speak uh, through me. Speak to our hearts. I pray that your word, I, pr- I pray that your word would, would do its work and penetrate our hearts so that we might be the people you want us to be. So thank you, Father. We commit this morning to you and uh, ask you to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this week, I don't know if you noticed, but the president uh, and the first lady were in the UK where they were the guests of Queen Elizabeth II. She hosted a beautiful dinner for them at uh, Buckingham Palace. And this was a picture of Queen Elizabeth that was taken just the other day. Uh, She is a remarkable lady. Uh, She ascended to the throne when she was 25 years old. She has reigned as the queen of the United Kingdom for 67 years. Uh, She has set the record as the longest reigning monarch in UK history, as the longest reigning British monarch. She is 93 years old, uh, and she gets around without a cane or a walker. That's just extraordinary to me, and that's why I think she's an amazing lady. I had a chance to uh, see her when she came to, the, to Los Angeles in 1983. Um, the fact that she, Elizabeth II, is the Queen of England uh, not only means that, it also means that she's also the sovereign head of the British realm, which, would, which means that Elizabeth is also the Queen of Antigua. She's the Queen of Australia. I never realized that. She's also the Queen of Canada the Queen of the Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, Jamaica, New Guinea, um, the Papua New Guinea, and New Zealand, and a host of other 
nations. I never realized that. In addition to the British realm over which she is the sovereign head, the queen is also the head of the 53-member uh, nation, uh, British Commonwealth of Nations, uh, 53-member British Commonwealth of Nations. And all these nations were once part of the British Empire. It's a vast and diverse uh, empire that she reigns over today. The Commonwealth today, um, combined population, has a combined population of 2.5 billion people. Out of the 7 billion people, that's one-third of the world's population. The Commonwealth nation covers 12.2 million square miles, or 21% of the Earth's landmass. And so again, the British Commonwealth is huge. In 1971, the, the Commonwealth issued what's called the Singapore Declaration. And then 20 years later, it was followed with the, in 1991 with the Harare Declaration, which was named after the fact that it was the, the declaration was issued in Harare, Zimbabwe. But in 71, the Singapore Declaration, in 91, the Harare Declaration, in which the Commonwealth set forth its purpose, its values, its core values, its criteria for membership in the Commonwealth. It spelled out exactly what was expected of Commonwealth member nations and how they were to go about their business and how it, how it is that they were to live their lives. For example, it declared that if you wanted to be a member of the Commonwealth, you needed to have peaceful intentions. You needed to be a peace-loving nation. You need to be at peace with yourselves and with each other, with other nations. They needed to stand for equal rights for all. They needed to be without any kind of prejudice. The Commonwealth described racial prejudice as, quote, unmitigated evil and a dangerous sickness, unquote. And then they also said that members needed to uphold democratic values. I mean, the, their declarations were, in essence, the manifesto. It was the manifesto of the Commonwealth. And every Commonwealth nation was ex is expected to toe the line and live according to these values. Otherwise, and if, you, if you're not living according to these values, you will be suspended and even expelled. And uh, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Z Zimbabwe found that out very uh, quickly as they were expelled in recent years for various uh, infractions uh, of, of their manifesto. And I'm telling you all this for a reason, all right? So we'll come back to that in a second. But, you know, today we're kicking off this brand new series called Live Like This. And for the next few months, we're going to be looking at what is undoubtedly Jesus' greatest teaching, his, his greatest and best-known collection of teachings, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's found in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And before we unpack it for you, before I unpack the Sermon on the Mount for you, there are a number of things you need to know about this teaching. First of all, the term or the phrase Sermon on the Mount is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's nowhere to be found in the Scriptures. Jesus never said, this is my Sermon on the Mount. All right, you, you just won't find it there. The term Sermon on the Mount was first coined by Augustine of Hippo around the year 400 A.D., Augustine was the bishop. He probably looked like this. Someone, with this one, someone did a painting of him. Uh, was the bishop of an ancient city in northern Africa called Hippo Regius, which you, you would find that in uh, Algeria, to be uh, precise. You'd find it in Algeria. So he was the one who came up with that term, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Second, it is believed that Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount uh, early on in his ministry, possibly in the first six months of his ministry, of his three-year ministry, probably in the six, first six months up to, the, up to a year, he taught the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, he, it was likely that he taught it uh, on a hill that is located on the northwest shore, northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And some say that you can see the Sea of Galilee. This is kind of the view of the Sea of Galilee from where he spoke. Um, this is taken from the, what, what is believed to be the hill. And uh, for those of you who are going uh, to uh, Israel with us and know in November, uh, we will have an opportunity to go to this exact location and see where it is that Jesus very likely preached the Sermon on the Mount. Um, third thing I want you to be aware of is who the Sermon on the Mount was directed to, who it was spoken to. Now, according to Pastor John Piper, uh, he described Jesus' audience uh, for the Sermon on the Mount as two concentric circles, all right? So two concentric circles, and it's actually found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. The very first verse, if you take a look at it, uh, and by the way, you have in your, ba- bring your Bibles every week. I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles for this series. But uh, the very first verse, and by the way, you have inside of your Baywatch, if you received a Baywatch, that's our program. Inside there's some notes. Not all the verses are listed there for you today. The incidental verses will all be on the screen, not on the, on the sheet there. But in verse 1, it says, seeing the crowds, Matthew wrote, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. All right, so in this very first verse, we see these two concentric circles of people that Jesus spoke to. First was the crowds. You can, you can circle crowds if you want. And then there were the disciples at the very end of the verse. So first Jesus spoke to the crowds. That would be the first circle. These were multitudes of people. We don't know how many. He doesn't tell us how many. Hundreds, perhaps. I mean, it's, it could have been thousands. And then the crowd was probably a mixture of believers and unbelievers. And then at the end of verse 1, it says that he spoke to his disciples. They came to him. And his disciples were his followers. And that would be the second circle here. So as Piper said, he spoke to two concentric circles of people, his disciples and the public. All right? Now, third, there's one more th- The third thing I want you to be aware of as we get started. And this is an important one. All right? This is the big picture. You need to understand the big picture. All right? Take a look at Matthew chapter 4. To understand the big picture, you've got to flip over page uh, chapter back. Go to Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew 4... Jesus launches his public ministry. This is where it takes off. This is where it gets rolling. All right? But before, as it gets gets rolling, here's what verse 17 says. From that time, Jesus began to preach. From the time that he launched his ministry, um, he began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? Circle the word kingdom. All right? Repent. His message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then a few verses later, same chapter, chapter 4, verse 23 says, And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. All right, so there's that word kingdom again. Circle that. All right, so the common noun in both of these verses is kingdom. All right, and the kingdom, so he came to preach the kingdom. He said to preach the kingdom of heaven. He came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And the word kingdom refers to the rule or the reign of God. The rule or the reign of God. And so the thrust of Jesus' preaching, the thrust of his message was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In fact, if you look at the book of Matthew, uh, the word kingdom appears 55 times. You'll find it 55 times. You compare that to the apostle Paul's letters. He wrote 13 letters. You know, Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, all those. He wrote 13 of them. The word kingdom appears only 14 times. That averages out to one mention of the kingdom for each one of his letters. And you compare that to Matthew where in that one book, 
The word kingdom is mentioned 55 times. And so it's very, this was the emphasis of his ministry. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He proclaimed to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. So that's what this is all about. And, and we get, as we look at this, we get an idea that the kingdom is about the future, but the kingdom is also present. It is now. It is here. Take a look at Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 20. And again, these are incidental verses, so I'm going to put them up here for you. They're not on your notes. But it says, but if, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. All right, so Jesus said the kingdom of God is upon you. Luke 17, verse 21 says, Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. All right, so the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the kingdom of God was in their midst. It was with them, it had come upon them, because for the very first time, the king had come. The king was here. He was in their midst. Therefore, the kingdom of God was now present. That's kind of the big picture, right? The big picture is that Jesus came, his king, and his message was that his kingdom came with him, and he came to proclaim the kingdom, right? So right here, at the very beginning of the ministry, Jesus spells out, now we come to, now we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and right here at the beginning, he proclaims, he spells out how we are to live in the kingdom of, of heaven. We are, he proclaims how we are to live our lives in the kingdom of God. So in a nutshell, the Sermon on the Mount, which now follows, was Jesus' manifesto for how we were to live our lives. This is how you live. And that's why I titled this series, Live Like This, because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. All right, The kingdom is here. Now, Here's how you, you need to live your lives. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it's all about. You can liken it to the declarations, the Singapore Declaration and the Harare Declarations, which were the manifestos for the Commonwealth Kingdom. This is how we expect you to live. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto, the Christian manifesto. This is how we are to live. All right, so that's what the Sermon, in a nutshell, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about how we are to live our lives. And that is so important, right? Because we desperately need to know, as Christ followers, how do we live our lives? How do we live in this ever-changing culture? How do we react to people around us? How do we live our lives? What do we say? What do we do? All these things. And let me give you an example of, of something that happened this week that illustrates why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. You might have heard that last Sunday, President Trump unexpectedly showed up at McLean Bible Church in Virginia uh, to receive prayer. And so Pastor David Platt, who is one of my favorite pastors and writers, who, he's the pastor of McLean Bible Church, he prayed for him. He, he prayed for the president. Now, apparently, there were some people who attend Platt's church who were, who were hurt by what he did, by what their pastor did. So this last Monday or Tuesday, uh, David Platt sent out a letter to his congregation, a very thoughtful letter. I, I read the letter explaining how the opportunity to pray for the president came about, right? And the story goes this way. He had just fin finished preaching at the one o'clock service, and then they were getting ready to do communion, kind of like us. We will have, and we'll probably have communion next week. We'll, we'll preach, and then we'll, we'll go into communion. That's kind of where they were at. So they were getting ready to go into communion, and then he was called backstage. And he went backstage and says, hey, what's going on? He says, as he was, they were preparing to uh, take communion, he was informed backstage by someone in the staff that the White House just called, and they wanted to inform the church that the president was on his way, and uh, he would be there in a few minutes, and uh, can you pray for the president? And so David Platt was totally caught off guard, 
And a few minutes later, he goes backstage. Everyone's taking communion, and he didn't tell anybody that the president's on his way. He goes back there, has a, has a few moments with the president, uh, and he said that he used that time to share the gospel with the president, which is a good thing. And then David Platt then brought the president out on stage, and he prayed for him, just like he did here. Before he prayed for him, he read a passage out of Timothy about how it's important for us to pray for our leaders, those in authority over us. And then he prayed for him. And after he prayed for him, the president didn't give any remarks. He just left, right? That's kind of how it happened. And I, I think that David Platt did the right thing. I, I think he did the right thing. The scripture commands us to pray for, for leaders for those in authority over us, whether or not we like them or whether we don't like them. Uh, it has nothing to do with politics. And if, if I had the opportunity, if the president showed up here, regardless of what, if it's President Trump or President Bush or President Obama, it doesn't matter who the president is, I'd pray for them. Uh, they need prayer, right? If Kim Jong-un showed up here to church, I'd bring him up here and I'd pray for him. The guy needs prayer, right? And that's kind of my Christian worldview, right? That we have an opportunity to pray for somebody, even if we don't like their politics. We pray for them. And so I would have done the same thing. Well, so he explained this. It wasn't an apology. It was just explaining to his congregation, to those who were hurt. And I understand why some people might have been hurt. I understand that. Um, but after his letter came out, I mean, the backlash continued. I mean, people were upset about the letter. And um, one of the criticisms, and you would never believe this, but one of the criticisms that was leveled against him was by Jerry Falwell Jr., who is the president of Liberty University in Virginia, which claims to be the largest Christian university in the world. And Jerry Falwell Jr. tweeted out this very crude tweet dissing David Platt, impugning his manhood. It was so crude that I, couldn't, I can't put it up here for you. And... It was really disgusting, to be honest with you. Falwell got so much flack that he was forced to take down the tweet. And then, rather than apologize for what he said about David Platt, this great pastor, right? He doubled down by tweeting that, hey, he's never been a minister. I'm a lawyer. I'm a real estate developer. I'm a university president. And the implication of what he said was, because I'm not a pastor, I can say whatever I want to say. I'm, I'm, I'm the university president, president of the Christian university, but we leave the spiritual things he said to the campus pastor, and the implication was, and so I can say whatever I want to say. And um, now, if, and again, I don't know his heart, I don't know the man, I don't know what's in his mind, but if that's what he really believes, then he couldn't be more wrong. All right, and I'm not judging him, I'm just telling, I'm just reporting some facts to you. See, you see, our actions and our reactions to everything and everyone around us must be different from the rest of the world if we are truly children of the king. If someone pushes your buttons, you can't use the, well, I'm not a pastor card and let them have it, right? You can't do that. Now, you know, if somebody cuts me off at the Target parking lot, I'm like, okay, I'm the pastor. I can't do that. And you can't say, well, I'm not a pastor, so I can do that, and I can tell him off. No, you can't do that. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. All about. It tells us how we are to live our lives. It is the Christian manifesto for how we are to live. And that's why this series is so important. In fact, Augustine went on to say that the Sermon on the Mount was the perfect standard for the Christian life. The perfect standard for the Christian life. All right, so let's get into it. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read the first 12 verses for you, and then we'll, 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 we'll unpack it, all right? So starting in verse 1, seeing the crowds, 
He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when, uh, when you, um, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were with who were before you. All right, so you can stop right there. Now, this is the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And it has, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount has a name for it. Anyone know what that is? What, it's, what is it called? It's called the Beatitudes, right? Way to go, Mark. It's called the Beatitudes. But if you noticed, the word Beatitudes is nowhere in the, the text. It's not to be found anywhere, just as the term or the phrase Sermon on the Mount doesn't appear anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you look at your Bible in, that, in, in this section, you'll probably see the title there, the Beatitudes, so the question is, where did the Beatitudes come from? Well, it came from the year 382 A.D. Three, in the year 382, Pope Damasus I commissioned a priest named Jerome to translate the Bible into Latin. They wanted a Latin Bible, and so he did. So Jerome sat down, painstakingly went through the Greek New Testament, translated the Greek into Latin, went through the, old, the Hebrew Old Testament, translated all of that into Latin, and the finished product was called the Vulgate Bible. It was the Latin Bible, and it has been used primarily by the Catholic Church. When it came to translating Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 2, Jerome translated that word we see here, blessed, 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 blessed. He translated that in the Latin word beati, beati. So for example, in Matthew 5, 3, which is blessed are the poor in spirit, it, 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 what it's translated this way in Latin, beati paporis spiritu. All right, that's Latin. And I don't know how my pronunciation is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, now, according to a 19th century Anglican priest named Henry Savage, it was Cicero who came up with the Latin word beatitudo. Beatitudo. And thus, when Jerome wrote the Vulgate, when he translated this uh, Matthew chapter 5, he used the word beatitudo as a heading, and he put it in there, inserted it as a heading, beatitudes, and it's been with us ever since, except that our English Bible translation uh, has, been tra has translated to the word beatitudes, all right? So that's kind of where it came from. It's not scripture. It's not the word of God. It's just an insertion that was made hundreds of years ago, uh, and it's a Latin word. Now, if you look at Matthew 5 again, the first thing that you can't help but notice is how often the word blessed appears. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed appears in, in the Beatitudes. Nine times if you count them. Blessed, 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 right? It's the Greek word makarios. Now, really, the, the only thing that matters is not the English or the Latin. It's the Greek, because what does it really mean? That's what Greek is all about, all right? Because that's how it was written. So it means blessed, but it also carries with it this idea, this word makarios carries with it the idea that we, we are so blessed that we're to be envied. We are to be envied because of all that God has done for us. We are to be envied because we are so blessed. And so Jesus said that life in the kingdom is blessed. You can write that one down. He said, he, he starts out, life in the kingdom is blessed. 
it is blessed. Let me give you an example. The other day, I, I came across an old photo that someone sent me a couple years ago. I hadn't seen it in a while. Uh, it was a photo someone took of me when I was at Pepperdine. I was sitting in the middle of the campus, just plopped down in the middle of the campus in the quad there with a newspaper. I was a news junkie even back then when I was 21 years old. And the campus pooch, I don't even remember his name, came up to me and we just sat there and someone snapped the photo. At the risk of making myself look like a fool, here's the photo. I was just a, I know, don't laugh, please. I was just a scrawny, uh, nerdy, very, very ordinary, immature kid. And when I saw this photo the other day, I began to reflect back and think about all that God's, God has done with that kid. You know, I couldn't, and it just, wow. Uh, if someone came up to me while I was sitting there and said, one of these days, you're going to be a pastor. I'd say, you are crazy, man. What are you talking about? And you can take the picture down. Uh, <laughs> seriously, as I thought about it, I looked at the picture, I thought, wow, look at what God has done in that kid. I mean, Jesus saved me from my sins. He forgave me of all my sins. And he still forgives me even to this day because I still sin every single day. God gave me a second chance. He gave me a brand new life. He allowed me to be born again. He did it, not me. He gave me a sense of purpose. And he gave me hope when, when there was no hope. He gave me the gift of eternal life and he gave me a couple of gifts so that I can do what I do as a pastor. And as I look back, he has always been there for me. Always been there for me through all of the struggles with loneliness, with depression, with anxiety, with failure, with hurt, with insecurity, with disappointment. And every time I backslid, he was there bringing me back. So often, he has carried me through some very hard times. And then he gave me gifts I didn't deserve to have. He blessed me with a wonderful wife and two of the most amazing young ladies in the world. He has allowed me to be part. This is the, I love this part. He's, loved, he's allowed me to be part of a loving an amazing church. And, and this church, you are my family. He's allowed, he's, he's blessed me so much. I mean, having Jesus in my life has been the greatest blessing of my life. Without a doubt, hands down. And I couldn't, and I realized that even because of this, I, I can't make it through a single day without him. Not a single day. And I can understand why this word blessed, um, the, it carries with it the idea that you are to be envied because you are so blessed. I understand why knowing Jesus is something to be envied. I am blessed beyond words. And I'm not talking about I'm blessed with money. I don't have any money. I'm blessed with all these, you know, relationships. And I'm blessed with good health and all that stuff. You know, the truth is, life is hard. Life is hard. Not everything is perfect. Uh, things are tough. It, it, life is painful and sad. You know, I think the predominant emotion that I've been feeling this entire week is sadness. I've been feeling so sad this week. It's been a sad week for me and for a number of different reasons, but I'll tell you about one of them. Last Sunday evening, my daughter Kylie learned that one of her best friends in the master's program at Pepperdine with her was killed in a tragic and senseless car accident Saturday, on Saturday. So it was the day before. So last Saturday she was killed, and Kylie didn't find about it until Sunday evening. 
Alexandra was 23 years old, just a beautiful girl. She was the same, same age as Kylie. And Kylie's been grieving all week. And we've been grieving with her. You know, when we see her cry, it just breaks our hearts and we cry too. So I want to ask you, pray for Ale- Alex's family. I can't imagine. They live in um, Baldwin Hills, I think, and I can't, Baldwin Park. And I, I can't imagine how difficult this has been for them. But, but I can tell you that Kylie would say that she couldn't have made it through the week without God. And she wrote this beautiful blog and tribute to her friend. You know, life as a child of the king is, is a blessing, but, but that doesn't mean it isn't hard sometimes. It is hard. And, and yet it is to be envied because we always have God with us. On the flip side, I, I don't envy anybody who doesn't have Christ. I mean, I don't know how anybody can make it through life without Christ. I, I just don't get that how you can cope with this kind of loss and sadness and grief without Jesus. Second thing I I couldn't help but notice as I read the Beatitudes was who belongs to God's kingdom. And that's kind of the rest of this. Who belongs to God's kingdom? And I call them God's, I call them kingdom citizens, God's children, kingdom citizens. And Jesus gives us eight qualities of kingdom citizens, starting in verse 3. The first one is that a kingdom citizen is poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can write that one down. Being poor in spirit. This was not a reference to being poor with regards to money. But rather, this was about being poor spiritually, poor in spirit. And to be poor in spirit, the the Greek word poor means to be deeply, deeply destitute, lacking any resources. It was a picture of utter desperation to the point of you having to cower like like a beggar. And thus, someone who is poor in spirit recognizes that they are depraved, that they are sinful, that they are evil, that they are spiritually bankrupt, and they are desperate for God. Without God, they are doomed. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is like that woman who came to Jesus. She came up from behind him. And she was so broken over her own sinfulness that she, couldn't, she didn't walk up to him. She crawled up to him. And then she broke oil and perfume and poured it on his feet and she wiped his feet with her tears and wiped her, her, his feet with her hair as tears poured down her face. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And this is such an important characteristic because we can't come to Jesus unless we recognize that we're a sinner. You can't come to Jesus unless you recognize that, man, I am, I am nothing, man, I need God. You can't come to God haughty and like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I could have a little God in my life, you know? Yeah, I've got everything. You know, you can't come to God thinking you, you're self-righteous and prideful and you've got it all and you've got everything going for you and, yeah, I'll put a little God in my life. Peter said God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so this is the first one. And by the way, all of these traits, all of these eight traits, I mean, there's a reward with it. There's a reward that comes with these traits. And the reward for being poor in spirit is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Circle that word is. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word is, two-letter word, but it packs a powerful punch. Because it is a present active indicative verb. Now, I know you don't care about that, but it's kind of important here. Present active indicative verb means that heaven is theirs now. Right? The heaven is theirs now. It belongs to them now. It is continuous because it's present active indicative. It is continuous action. It is yours now and it will always be yours. It continues to be yours every single day. The kingdom of heaven is yours. That's kind of the idea here. There. You can write that one down. The reward is heaven. And I love that. 
but the fact that our, 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 our reward, the kingdom of heaven is ours now and will always be every day. Tomorrow, the kingdom of heaven is yours and the day after that and the day after that and the week after that and the year after that. The second characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they mourn. That's verse four. Kingdom citizen mourns. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, Jesus wasn't speaking here of bereavement due to the loss of a loved one or this wasn't about mourning because your fantasy baseball team lost or because your favorite bachelor didn't get a rose, right? This is about mourning over sin. This is about mourning over what we just talked about, that you're poor in spirit. You see, there are tears in the kingdom, right? There is joy in the kingdom. There's blessing in the kingdom, but there are also tears in the kingdom. Take a look at what Jesus said in Luke's account of the Beatitudes. Luke also wrote about the Beatitudes. Luke 6, verse 25. We'll just put it up here for you. Again, if you want to write some of these verses down just so that you have, you can write that down on your notes. But Jesus said, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Right, there is weeping and mourning and crying and tears in the kingdom of heaven. And it's weeping and crying over sin. So opposite the world, isn't it? There is weeping and crying and mourning over sin. You know, we live in a culture that revels in sin. And you don't believe me. All you need to do is check out what happens uh, during spring break or at Coachella. The clearing call of our nation has become, let's party! That's kind of what we're all, let's party! And everybody whoops it up. But Jesus said the kingdom belongs to those who mourn, who grieve over those kinds of things. I mean, when was the last time you cried over sin? When was the last time your heart broke over babies who are aborted and their limbs are taken, ripped apart in the mother's womb and, and then they're sucked out? When was the time, last time you, you mourned over the fact that pornography is destroying our young people and alcoholism and drugs destroying our people, even our adults? When was the last time you mourned over your own sin, own wickedness in your own heart? Mourners are the ones, Jesus said, who inhabit the kingdom of heaven. And notice what their reward is. Verse, at the end of verse 4, they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. This is, this is so good. Jesus promised that those who mourn over their own depravity will be comforted by the only thing that can comfort a sinner. You know what that is? The only thing that can comfort a sinner is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. It comforts me to know that I am forgiven. And I have so much to be forgiven for. But it comforts me to be forgiven uh, by Christ. And notice at the end of verse 4, it says, they, for they shall be comforted. Will you circle that word shall? For they shall be comforted. This is not a present tense verse as we saw in verse 3. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a future tense verse. Shall, they shall be comforted. This is a future tense verse, which means that the comfort, although you might experience a little bit of it now, the real comfort comes at the end. The real comfort comes when you see Jesus. When he welcomes you into his arms, when you go to heaven, he welcomes you into his presence. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's when the real com comfort comes. That's when you realize, oh, I've been forgiven. Here I am. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I made it. And so we enjoy that comfort, total comfort in heaven. The third trait of a kingdom citizen is meekness. Verse 5 says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And circle that word meek, it's the Greek word praus, praus. And biblical meekness is not weakness. Praus means gentle or humble, considerate or courteous. 
So you can write that one down. A kingdom citizen is meek. You know, one of my recent pet peeves is the thumbs down sign or icon on YouTube. I don't know what it is with people these days, but they give a thumbs down to everything. And it drives me crazy. Uh, Let me show you a a couple of screenshots of three of my uh, favorite YouTube videos. My favorite YouTube videos. Check this one out. Cute. This is just a screenshot. Cute babies, right? Uh, Goes for a couple minutes. Of all these cute babies, they're so cute. And you go down there in the really bottom, you know how many thumbs down it has? 34,000 thumbs downs. How can you give a baby thumbs down, right? You got to be the devil to do that. Like, what is wrong with you? Are you a baby hater, right? It's like, what is wrong? And yet 34,000 people have seen this video and they go, oh, thumbs down. Are you serious? Here's another one. The first look video. Oh, oh man, if you don't cry when you look at this one, nothing will make you cry. This, these are all little videos of, of, of the, the groom getting the first look at the bride on their wedding day. I remember the first time I, I remember my first look when, when I got married. And I, you know, when I, saw, I turned around and saw Cheryl, I started bawling, right? And so this first, and it's all very touching, soft music, you know, just kind of tugs at the heart. Shane and Allie, you ought to look at this. This is really good. They're getting married next year. And you look, you look over here. What? 141 thumbs down. Are you kidding me? Are you heartless? <laughs> do, do you not have a heart? What, what is going on with it? Now, here's the third one. This one really gets me. Cute puppies. Now, who doesn't like a cute puppy? Right? That is a thumbs down. I'd give it 10 thumbs. I mean, thumbs up. That's a 10 thumbs up, right? 240 thumbs downs. I can't believe it. Are you a dog hater? What is wrong? Are you a cat lover? You hate dogs? You can give them a thumbs down? See, I'm kind of making fun of this, light of this, but you know, it just seems to me, it, it really seems to me that meekness and gentleness and courtesy and consideration and kindness just, just out the window these days. It really is just out the window. And, and seriously, with the, with the advent of the, this uh, thumbs down icon, people are like, well, I'm going to let them know what I think. I'll, I'll let them know. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them what I think. And, and they do. And I say thumbs down to thumbs down. See, I, Jesus said that the kingdom, the kingdom citizens are meek. They're gentle. I mean, if you don't like something, just don't say it. You know what I mean? Why express that? And, and we all have opinions. And, and you know, there's some things we don't like, and that's okay. But let's be meek about it. And for those who, who are meek, who are gentle, their reward is that they, take a look at it, verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. They get it all. Now what does this mean? This is crazy, right? The, the word shall again tells us that the reward is in the future, right? It is a future uh, tense, right? But one day the meek shall inherit the earth. Now I don't have time to really get into it today except to say that when we went through the book of Revelation, we studied the book of Revelation a couple years ago, in, in Revelation chapter 20, it tells us that one day Christ followers, when Christ comes to planet Earth, we are going to reign with him on Earth for a thousand years. We all get a, an opportunity to reign on Earth, and the Earth will be completely remade. It's not going to look anything like this. I keep telling Pastor Greg, you better get your surfing in now because there ain't going to be any waves in the new Earth, Right? And we get to reign. We get to reign with him on planet earth. And that's what it means. We will inherit the earth. We get all of this, right? We get it all. 
Recently, someone posted their favorite verse on the whiteboard in the lunchroom. This was it right here. It's coming up, I know. 11, lunch, 11.35, right? Lunch, as Pastor Dave said, we love to eat, right? Ah, it's not a verse, I know that, right? Some of you, oh, what, where's that verse? No, no, that, no you don't know about, no. <laughs> lunch, 11.35, right? We love to eat. In fact, I, I'm gonna give you a little heads up, okay? Don't tell anyone, but we love to eat. So 4th of July weekend, I think 4th of July is on Thursday, so that following weekend on Saturday, if you come here for the Saturday night service, we're ordering Chick-fil-A sandwiches for everybody. And then on Sunday, if you come Sunday, we're getting the In-N-Out uh, Burger Mobile, and they're going to come, and we're gonna, they're going to make fresh you know, In-N-Out burgers if you want to get a burger or a cheeseburger, and that'll be that Sunday, right? But the fourth characteristic of the king, that's a little heads up, but the, the fourth characteristic <laughs> of kingdom citizens is that is, is, uh, has to do with eating and drinking. Speaking of eating and drinking, it has, the fourth characteristic of the kingdom citizen has to do with eating and drinking. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus said that kingdom citizens have an insatiable desire for more of God. They have an insatiable desire to seek after God. They have this unending appetite to live righteously and to do what is right. You can write that one down. Another way of putting it is that they can't get enough of Jesus. Kingdom citizens can't get enough of Jesus. I mean, is that you? Are you someone you can't get enough of Jesus? I recently read that fewer and fewer Christ followers go to church. In fact, churches that are growing, growing churches, their, act, their attendance is actually declining because people say, well, I don't need to go to church. It's kind of a new day. You know, whereas in the past... Uh, in the old days, as my daddy used to say, if you were a Christian, everybody goes to church. Hey, Sunday, we're going to church. You get all scrubbed up and you go to church. You wouldn't think of missing it. And you wouldn't think of missing a Bible study. But church experts are telling us that today everything has changed and fewer and fewer so-called Christ followers go to church. In fact, they're kind of the average now. They, they figured this out. Kind of the average uh, church attender goes about once or twice a month. Like, yeah, I went this month. You know, I'm good for the month. Well, I went, I went twice this, year, this month. You know, it's like, I can take the rest of it. And for whatever reason, they're, Christ Father, they feel like they don't have to go to church. And, and I just wonder if that has to do with whether they're hungry or not. Well, how, how hungry they are. Jesus said a kingdom citizen is hungry. They're thirsty. They can't get enough of God's word. They can't get enough of God's people being around God's people. They can't get enough of, of just prayer. They can't get enough of worshiping God. They just can't get enough of this. And so they just... They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the reward, their reward is satisfaction. For they shall be satisfied. Again, shall, future tense, one day we will be, one day you will be totally satisfied. You'll be so satisfied in the presence of Jesus. You know, many years ago, there was a writer named Eloise Schick, and she wrote about the time when she was a volunteer um, at a hospital. I think it was candy stripers at a local hospital. And she said one day she arrived at, it was the day before Father's Day. That would be next weekend. The day before Father's Day, she went, she went to the hospital, the volunteer services. It was a Saturday morning. Uh, and she stepped in the elevator, and there was a man, a young man in a military uniform. And so she said they went up to the fifth floor. They walked down the hallway. And as he got out of the hallway, he was kind of looking around. He looked a little bit lost, and so the nurse noticed him. And so she came up to him, and she said, you must be Mr. Bates. She said, grab it. She said, come with me. Your father's waiting. And so he went. Later on, Eloise asked the soldier, asked the nurse, 
who the soldier was, and here's what she replied. I'll put it up here for you. I was in ER when they brought an elderly man who'd collapsed on the street. He had no identification except for an old smudge letter in his pocket. It was from his son, Jim Bates. You can tell the old guy had reread it hundreds of times. It practically fell apart in my hands. Well, Nurse Jenkins then contacted the Red Cross. They located Private Bates at a, at a military base in Kentucky. And so he caught the first next plane out. And here's how Eloise um, wrote the rest of the story. She sighed, the nurse. She sighed, I'm glad they found him. I don't think his dad will make it to Father's Day. Tears stung my eyes and silently I prayed for both men. Then I crept down the hall to see if I could help. The soldier sat hunched over in a straight chair next to the hospital bed. As he gripped the old man's limp hand, I sensed those squeezes of love and encouragement. Excuse me, I said. If, if you'd like to take a break, I'll stay with your father for a while. When he didn't turn around, I thought he hadn't heard me. And then he said softly, thank you. No, this is where I want to be. The next morning, I decided to stop by the hospital. When I arrived at the ward, I became apprehensive when I saw the soldier standing at the nurse's station and his, word, his words confirmed my worst fears. He's gone. I'm so sorry, the nurse said. And then his next words hit me like a thunderbolt. Who was that man? Asked the soldier. The nurse pulled back. Why, he was your father, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. I, I never saw him before in my life. And I first set eyes on him. I knew that it had been a mistake. And then I realized he was too sick to tell whether or not I was his real son. I figured he needed me, so I stayed. And with that, the soldier turned and left the hospital. That's mercy. That's mercy. And the fifth quality of a kingdom citizen is mercy. A kingdom citizen is merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And mercy, mercy is having compassion for people who are in need. Mercy is having compassion for people who are in distress and people who are in misery. And God's people should embody it. We should personify mercy because God has been merciful to us. And the reward for showing mercy is that the kingdom citizen shall receive mercy. You can write that one down. The reward is mercy. If you give mercy, you will get mercy. See, when we become Christians, we receive God's mercy. But it isn't until we see him face to face that we will receive the totality of his mercy. That's why we shall receive mercy in the future. God's people are merciful. Are you merciful? Think about that. The sixth trait is being pure in heart. Sixth trait of a kingdom citizen is being pure in heart. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. You know, Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote a book, that, I, that I've used to prepare uh, this, some, I've read quite a few books to prepare uh, my messages. He wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount and said that pure in heart means letting, letting nothing stand in the way of your vision of Christ. Letting nothing stand in the way of your vision of Christ. I mean, so many things get in the way of our view of Christ, don't they? So many things. There's so many obstructions, so many obstacles to our view of Christ, and we need to remove those obstacles. We need to remove those obstructions I mean, what keeps you from seeing Christ? Maybe it's busyness. Maybe you're so busy that you, can't, like, you don't even have time to pray. You don't even have time to read your Bible, think about God. Maybe, maybe it's relationships. You're so consumed in your relationships. It's all about your significant other. It's all about your kids. It's all about your, your husband or your wife. And it's all about your friends. And you're like, I don't have time for God. Maybe it's your job. Maybe you work 80 hours a week. Who's got time for church? Who's got time for God? Who's got time to read the Bible? Who's got time to pray? 
Maybe it's some kind of a sin, some kind of an addiction, an obstruction that keeps you from seeing Christ. Kingdom citizens have an unobstructed view of Christ, and we need to remove those things. That's what we need to do. And the reward, the reward is that they shall see God. We will see God. Isn't that great? We will see God. And that's, again, future tense. We'll see God in person one day, face to face. You will see God. The seventh characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are peacemakers. They are peacemakers. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You see, in God's economy, a peacemaker is not an anti-war protester or a pacifist. You know, if I say, you know, nobody likes war, right? Nobody likes war. I hate war. But a peacemaker doesn't mean, okay, we're going to, let's go out and protest the war, right? No. Peacemaker is not an instigator or an agitator. A peacemaker is a reconciler. Peacemaker is a reconciler. That's a biblical definition of a peacemaker. It's a reconciler. It is someone who tries to bring two parties together. And especially it helps a reconciler is someone who helps bring people to, together with God. Yeah, people make peace with, with God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, I don't have it there for you, but he wrote that, that Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that we, and Paul said, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, make peace with God. And that's the job of a reconciler, a peacemaker. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Again, the word shall, future tense, one day you will be called a son of God. One day you will be called a daughter of God. It's amazing. I can't, there's anything I'd rather, anything I'd, I'd want to be called other than that, that I was a son of God, that you were a daughter of God. The board is that they'll be called the sons of God. And I, I don't know if you notice this, but we're almost done here. But, but all of these beatitudes, all these traits, they're all connected. One leads to the other and one builds upon the other. They're all connected. Kingdom living begins when you recognize you're poor in spirit and you're a sinner and you're spiritually broken. That leads to mourning, mourning over your sin, mourning over your brokenness. That leads to meekness, a, a humility, a gentleness, a, a realization, man, I'm nothing without God. Do you see the progression? And then that meekness leads to a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Man, I want more of God. I want more of Him. You can't, I can't get enough of Him. And that leads to mercy, like you begin to think of others. And you begin to show mercy to others. And that leads to a pure heart. Now, you want not wanting anything to obstruct your view of Christ. And then you just keep moving forward. And that leads to being a peacemaker. And you want to help others be reconciled to God. And if you were living out all these seven traits... Do you know what that means? If you're living out these seven traits, you know what that means? You're on fire, man. That's what it means. You're on fire for God. And you are living the life that Christ wanted you to live. You're living out according to his manifesto. And you know what will happen? If you're living out these seven things, you know what's going to happen? The devil will hate you. The devil will go after you. He'll do anything he can to take you down. The world will hate you. And you will be persecuted. The world will go after you. And that's why the eighth characteristic of a kingdom citizen is persecution. It is persecution. Verse 10 and 11 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, two verses here. These are not two separate beatitudes. This is one beatitude. Verse 11 is simply a restatement in verse 10. Someone once said that if you're not being persecuted... Uh, or maybe, or I'll put it the more positive way, if you're being persecuted, you're probably doing something right. If you're not being persecuted, maybe you need to step it up in your relationship with Christ. Now, most, most of us in America don't 
know what persecution is like. We don't, you, we don't have persecution here like we have in, in other places, although I believe that in the years to come, it, it's only going to get worse for Christ followers even here in America, and I think we're beginning to see a little bit of that. But it's nothing like what's going on in the rest of the world. All around the world today, Christ followers are being slaughtered for their faith. Just a couple of weeks ago, extremists kidnapped 17 Christians in Nigeria. They completely disappeared. They can't find uh, where they are. And according to an organization called Save the Persecuted Christians, Christ followers, more Christ followers have died in the last 100 years, more in the last 100 years than in the, first, than the 1900 years that preceded it. So in other words, from the time of Christ, 2,000 years, the first 1,900 years, a lot of people died. But in the last 100 years, more people died in the last 100 years than all the 1,900 years before it combined. And it's going to get worse. And notice what the reward of persecution is. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound familiar? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same reward that we found in verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The is, present, active, indicative. Your reward is now. If you're being persecuted, your reward is now. What do you mean I mean persecuted? No, your reward is now. The kingdom of heaven is with you. And so verse, we have eight beatitudes. The first one and the last one. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Your reward is now. The second beatitude, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, your reward is in the future. One day we will have an award and reward. And I, lo- I love verse 12. It says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, your reward is great. And no wonder we're blessed. We are so blessed to be Christ's followers. So I guess it kind of begs the question, what kind of a reward do you think you'll have when you get to heaven? Well, the answer to that really kind of depends on how you live this life. If you live this life, according to the Christian manifesto, if you live this life as Jesus spelled it out for us, then your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. If you're a kingdom citizen, let's live like Jesus said to live. Be poor in spirit. Mourn over your sin. Be meek. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be merciful to others. Be pure in heart. Be a peacemaker. And you will be persecuted and your reward will be great. Amen? Let's close our time in prayer. You know, as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to just reflect on one thing I said. It has been the greatest blessing of my life to know Jesus. I have zero regrets. I would never change a thing. I have failed. I have fallen. I have backslidden at times. It has been painful. It has been hurtful. There have been disappointments. There have been heartaches. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. There's nothing like Jesus. And if you've never given Jesus a chance, if you've never given him an opportunity to come into your life and be a part of your life, then you are not to be envied. You are to be pitied. I don't know how anybody can get through life without him. So today, I want to invite you, open up your heart to him. Give him your life. Tell him, Lord, I believe in you. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I give you my life. 
Tell him that. And you will be blessed. The kingdom of heaven will be yours. Live according to his manifesto. Be poor in spirit. Mourn. Be meek. Hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Be merciful. Be pure in heart. Be a peacemaker. Expect persecution. But you will be the man or the woman that God wants you to be. Father, I pray that all throughout this room, right now, your Holy Spirit would just work in every heart. And Father, you didn't, you didn't bring everyone here for, for some coincidence. By coincidence, you brought everyone here by your design and purpose. And I pray that you would speak to them now. I pray that for, if anyone is in this room today and they've never surrendered their lives to you, help them to do so right now. Help them to believe right now. In fact, if that's you, just say, say to him right now, Lord, I believe. I believe in you. I give you my life. Say that to him right now. God, I pray that for all the rest of us, if we, if we name the name of Christ, if we believe that we are followers of yours, God, help us to take your manifesto to heart, starting with the Beatitudes, starting right here. And God, help us to be people who mourn over our sin, who hate sin, who grieve sin. We grieve our own sin. Help us to be poor in spirit, recognizing all those things. Help us to be meek, gentle, and courteous, and kind and loving. Help us to be people who can't get enough of you, God, because you're so good, you're so blessed. Help us to be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, help us to be people who are merciful because you have shown mercy to us. Help us to run out whenever we see a need. Help us to love and to care for others. God, help us to be pure in heart that there would never be anything that would ever come between us and you. Help us be determined to remove every obstacle, every obstruction, every sin that gets in the way, that entangles us from, the, from running the race. God, help us to be peacemakers. Not only to reconcile people with each other, but help us to be reconcilers, peacemakers, that we would help reconcile and help others to make peace with you. And Father, if the persecution comes for it, then we will honor you and we will praise you. We will not fight back. We will not get angry. But we will continue to remain meek and merciful and pure in heart and loving. This is your manifesto for us, Lord. This is how you want us to live. Help us to live like you want us to live. Thank you, Father.